and this evening we are considering its parallel with Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It is our custom at this meeting to join together in reading a portion of scripture and those who are taking part in this recording, if you care to switch off for a little while, our reading together will be Philippians chapter 3. This evening, we are bringing the survey of the epistle to the Hebrews to a close. There's one feature that I would like to mention in case you feel there's an omission. And that is, in the ordinary course of things, we should have taken Hebrews chapter 9 and made it the basis of an extended examination of the tabernacle and its furniture, because it's so evidently an integral part of the epistle. But as these studies are being recorded, and we don't want to duplicate, I'm reminding those who are listening, if they wish to have further help on the tabernacle and its typical teaching, they will find in tapes numbered 78, 79 and 80, three subjects, or three tapes, which have been devoted to that study. Now, there is a possibility, in the minds of some, that all the time we've been considering this epistle to the Hebrews, they may be saying to themselves, Physician, heal thyself. In this sense, we have stressed not only in this chapel, but in all our testimony, that we are not Hebrews. And that we come under a dispensation where there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, but the only company that matters is one body. That there is no reference in the epistle to the Ephesians onward to a new covenant. The new covenant, which is the integral part of Hebrews, there it is, right in the middle of the 8th chapter, was made with the self-same people that received the old covenant at Mount Sinai. And so they may say, well, how is it that you can maintain there's an essential difference in these callings and yet spend so much time on Hebrews and not only so, but keep telling us how it applies to ourselves? Well, of course, that argument taken further would mean that as you were not in the Garden of Eden, you shouldn't read Genesis and as you were never with Joshua, you shouldn't read the story of going through the Jordan. In fact, you would deny the fact that the scripture has been written for our learning. We make a great distinction between two statements. We believe that all scripture is for us. But all scripture is not about us. There are other callings beside ours. But there is one thing we do well remember that although there are, say, three distinct callings, one to be enjoyed on earth, one to be enjoyed in the heavenly Jerusalem, and one to be enjoyed far above all where Christ sits at the right hand of God, they're distinct in their calling, in their constitution, in their sphere, yet there's a parallel in God's dealing with his children. I could not only demonstrate to you that the epistle to the Hebrews has a tremendous amount of correspondences with Philippians. But we could take it a stage further. I could put up another chart, be rather uh, disconcerting, I admit, but we could put up another one. And you'd find tremendous parallels between the Sermon on the Mount, Philippians, and Hebrews. 
Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, one chapter keeps on saying, they have their reward and you shall be rewarded. It's the same element. And Philippians is not the way of salvation. Philippians assumes you're saved and says, work out your salvation. And Philippians focuses attention, as you remember in chapter 3 that we read just now, for the prize of the high calling. For salvation isn't a prize. Nobody can ever, ever win salvation. It's a gift of God. But there are some things which are over and above salvation, which you may forfeit. You remember Colossians? Beware that no man beguile you of your reward. There it is again. So you see, it's a rather neglected aspect of truth that there are two sides to this question. Salvation by gift, which can neither be won nor lost, and then over and above, a recognition of faithful service, a well-done good and faithful servant, a crown, a prize, or reward, whichever way you put it, is so impressed upon certain scriptures that it's to our loss if we discard them and put them aside. So that we can see in the way in which the Lord dealt with the children of Israel in the wilderness, we are told that these things happen for examples. We are walking through a wilderness, they're not exactly the same, but there's a good many things that are parallel. And so we have been following Hebrews and learning by looking at God's dealings with others, realizing how many, many times the parallel is complete. So there are two things then I'm reminding you. If you wish to have help on the tabernacle, there are those three tapes, 78, 79 and 80. And if you have been exercised as to whether we've been forgetting ourselves and forgetting the great principle of right division, we haven't. Well now, the thing that we want to do is to seek to demonstrate this evening that just as Hebrews is to Romans a sort of a little proportion sum. As Hebrews is to Romans, so Philippians is to Ephesians. Uh, are you good at arithmetic? Can you see that? Because I sympathise with you if you're not. But it seems to me that it's what uh, we've got this analogy. Now Romans is the basic epistle of Paul's first ministry. I don't think there's any question about that. Justification by faith without works and all that grows out of it. Well then Hebrews comes along, written by the same man, written during the same period, and doesn't stress justification by faith without works so much. But he now addresses those who are holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling, who are following in the footsteps of Abraham and become pilgrims and strangers in this world because they have a city in front of them. He's giving them a word of exhortation. He's urging them to lay aside every weight and run the race that is set before them. So you see, there's a pair. Now that's a balance. A person who knows nothing more than sovereign grace without works doesn't really know sovereign grace because he's unbalanced. The very same scripture says, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works immediately goes on to say it's unto good works. And until you've got the balance, neither of them are true. I don't know whether any of you have ever attempted to draw a person's portrait. If you value friendship, I should avoid it. 
But if you don't bother, one thing I would insist upon, friends, before ever you attempt a likeness and all the little tiny details and that lovely little dimple that everybody talks about or that objectionable pimple which some people don't want to talk about, <coughs> the one thing that's essential before you do anything else is proportion. It doesn't matter whether the nose is the right shape. If it's twice as big, it's wrong. And if you overemphasize grace, so that you never emphasize responsibility, then you've got an unbalanced line of teaching. Well, that's where this comes in. And I'm taking now the balance of truth between Hebrews and Philippians, so that we shall see for ourselves that the same thing had been said to us in our calling as was said to others in theirs. Now, the central feature, if I can say a center, no, I suppose I can't, the two foci of Hebrews are those words which we've put in the very middle of this chart, perfection and perdition. So I want to make sure that everyone sees those before we go over to Philippians. Will you look at Hebrews chapter 6 once more? <coughs> Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and we noticed the margin and found it was truer. Therefore, leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. That's the exhortation. Let us go on unto perfection. Now, there's an alternative at the end of chapter 10. <coughs> Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. To draw back is the opposite to going on. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. They are the two alternatives in front of the Hebrews. And you may say to me, well, I'm sure those two alternatives can never be in front of a member of the body of Christ. Well, let's look at Philippians. Chapter 3. We read it together just now, but you did not actually read the word perdition, I'll admit. The Apostle says in verse 12, I'll avoid the reference to resurrection in verse 11 for a moment. Verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. To those who do not know the meaning of the word perfect, you wouldn't quite understand his connection between attaining and the word perfect. But we've had it so many times at this meeting that I almost hesitate to say it again. And yet I think I must. Because the word does not mean in the New Testament getting better. Improvement. It says in the epistle to the Hebrews that our Saviour himself was made perfect by the things that he suffered. He wasn't improved. And the very word perfect enters into his own words on the cross where he said, it is finished. Perfected. The word perfect means to reach an end. It's a part of a group of words all built upon the stem T-E-L. Tenos is the end. Tenaios is the word perfect. And titaniki are the words it is finished. And Paul says, in a context of running a race and winning a crown, I have finished my course, henceforth a crown. Now the apostle says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. 
if for I may apprehend that, for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Paul was a wise man. There's an Old Testament proverb that says, let not him boast that puts his armour on as he that puts it off. And the world has a parallel. There's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. He said, not as though I have already yet apprehended, but I'll tell you what I do. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Paul never ran to get salvation. He never pressed according to any mark to be saved. He was struck down on the road to Damascus in a moment of time and passed from death unto life. There was no running and fitting himself and struggling, but here he says, not as though I were already perfect. I think most of us would admit, if we were very hard pressed, that we are not better than the Apostle Paul. I'll put it mildly, don't I? If the Apostle Paul could write at this period of his life, not as though I were perfect. I think most of us would admit, well, we must be in the same box, don't you? So these words may be well for us to ponder. Well, there's the emphasis upon the word perfect. When we come to Philippians, as we may have to do later on, I shall ask you to consider the translation of verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as would be perfect. Because it says, let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. Well, Paul says, I'm not perfect. No, that's not quite the point. As many as would be, be thus minded. Now, what about the word perdition? Well, here it comes. Verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition. Exactly the same word. Letter for letter. So we have Hebrews with its alternatives. On to perfection, or back to perdition. We have in Philippians the two alternatives. On to perfection, or back to perdition. Now, is this element of a prize that you're running for? It's evidently here in Philippians. Is it in Hebrews? Shall we turn to Hebrews 12 to refresh our memory? Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Says so, doesn't it? A race. And this word race, you might be interested to know, is the word translated fight in 2 Timothy 4. It's not a military campaign that Paul has in mind in 2 Timothy 4. It's a conflict or a contest in the Greek sports. So he says here, let us run with patience. And the next verse, introduces the word perfecter and also introduces the cross of Christ for the first time in Hebrews. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. That word author we've met in chapter 2, it's the word captain. This word finisher is another translation of the word perfecter. And we've already suggested that the word perfect means going on to the end. The finisher or perfecter of faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The cross is introduced in Hebrews not as an instrument of salvation 
but as something in association with running a race and winning a crown. Well now, those features I think are obvious. While we've got Hebrews before us, will you look at chapter 11? You remember when we were looking at Hebrews, we found that it fell into groups of seven. There was Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Sarah, and we come to a stop. Then it starts all over again with another seven, and then when, when the Apostle Paul, I always like to think this because in these meetings, I keep on having to look up to see whether that little lamp up there has changed its colour because that's a warning to me that I've only a few more minutes to go. And the Apostle says, verse 32, Oh, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me, see, the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Balak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel and the prophets. But he still says seven. Three groups of seven. And among the things that he says when he sums it all up is this particular statement in verse 35. Women receive their dead raised to life again. Well, we, we remember there are instances in the Old Testament where a prophet has raised someone from the dead. But now he's going to say something more, something different. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Not accepting deliverance. That they might obtain, obtain, I think I hear those words in Philippians, that they might obtain a better resurrection. A better resurrection must be a different resurrection. Now, is there such a thing? Is it possible? Shall we now turn to Philippians 3? He says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He doesn't want to know the proof of his resurrection. He doesn't ask about the doctrine associated with the resurrection. But he says there's a power connected with that resurrection. It's a reality. It's something that we can lay hold of. And then, because he can be associated with the risen Christ, he can then dare to ask to have fellowship with his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, and it's got an object in view all the time. What's his object? If by any means. Now the Apostle, you remember, had been involved in a shipwreck. Only a year or two before he wrote these words. And if you read the 27th and 28th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, you get the record of that shipwreck. And there came a time when, because the season was coming to an end, when sailing was prohibited, that they put into not a very, very good harbour, a desolate place. And seeing they got to spend a good many months there, they ventured. They ventured to see whether they could get to a better port. And you know what it says, it's so true to life. And the south wind blew softly. Oh, haven't we had that in our experience? And I don't suppose they argued, but they said, come on, the south wind's just right, just right for us. And they started off, listen to the words, if by any means they may get to this other port. But they didn't. So you see, it's absolutely impossible 
For the Apostle Paul here to be, if by any means I may be raised from the dead. Because there's no possibility of avoiding it. If this man was a believer in Christ and he was, then the blessed hope was his. One day to be raised in the likeness of his Lord. But what's he saying then, this word, if by any means, that it might not take place? Because he's not talking about resurrection. He's talking about a better resurrection. Hebrew says there's a better resurrection. Philippians puts it another way around and says, if by any means I might attain unto, now you've got to take it from me for the moment, except those who are following this in the original Greek, as sometimes you do. But you can easily refer to any helps afterwards to check this. If by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that one which is out from among the dead. There is a duplication of the preposition ek. An ex anastasis ectone necron. Now, let's come back over the story of the apostles and their Lord when he was instructing them and teaching them. There came a moment when he said to them, don't say a word about this until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And then they started arguing. They started reasoning among themselves what the rising from the dead could mean. Well, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? We find that they, even the Pharisees believed the, that there would be a resurrection. And Martha, she gave the ordinary faith. She said, oh, true Lord, he will be raised again at the last day. Well, why should these disciples start arguing and reasoning? Because the Lord said, the resurrection or rising from the dead. Well, he didn't, friends. He said something more. It wasn't the word rising from the dead that made them worry. It was that he slipped the little word ek in. He said, say nothing about this till the Son of Man be risen out. Ek. Oh, I see, this is not merely the resurrection in the last day. No. This is something extraordinary. Yes. And so when the Apostle said here, I would be glad to share his sufferings if by any means I could take part in that ex-anastasis, that resurrection which is out from among the dead. Although he knew that if by any means suggested that it wasn't a certainty. So you see, if you import salvation into this, then Paul wasn't certain of his salvation, which is foolish. He was as certain as anybody of his salvation but he wasn't certain of his reward, and neither are you, nor am I. Because if you're certain of it before you start, well, it's not a reward at all. It makes me think of an old superintendent of a ragged school who used to spoil the whole thing, call the children all manner of names, and then give every one of them a prize at the end. Well, it wasn't a prize. They knew they'd get away with it, whatever they did. But that isn't the use of the term. You remember when Paul is dealing with this prize element Writing to the Corinthians, he said that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize so run that you may obtain. But he says, I, I may be disqualified, even though I've heralded to others. No man is crowned except he strive lawfully. I'm stressing this because there are some who will not have any idea of an element of reward in the epistles of the mystery. So we'll have one more. We don't want to uh, overdo this. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. 
Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. This is service, not salvation. Knowing that of the Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. You don't get the inheritance as a reward. You're made meet for it by grace alone. But you get the reward associated with the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. And then look, there's an alternative. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. Whether you're a member of the body of Christ or not, you won't get away with it. So, there it is. Well now as we want to give this analysis uh, just a little run over, I'll have to leave those features to speak for themselves. Now, I think we'll just glance at these. I don't think we need to turn to the Scriptures because it will take so much of our time. I'm speaking to those who know the Word of God in general and I think all I want to do is to leave the impression on your mind that there are enough parallels in these two epistles to make it very obvious that although they belong to two different callings, God deals with his children along parallel lines. Hebrews, in chapter 6, says, although I say this, although I'm talking like this, I'm speaking about those things which accompany salvation. Not salvation itself. The things that accompany salvation. So Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I should fear and tremble a bit more if I had to work for my salvation. It's bad enough to work it out afterwards. And do remember that Philippi received a revenue because they had a gold mine associated with the town. And as far as I know, a gold mine's valueless unless you work it out. And they may have appreciated the reference to the term. And then in both of these epistles, there is a citizenship which is put as a sort of lure. Hebrews tells you that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were willing to be tent dwellers instead of settling down in the land of promise because they look for a city which has foundations. They look for a city. And when you come to Philippians, you get it in verse 21, uh, verse 20 of Philippians 3. For our conversation is in heaven. It isn't everybody who realises the word conversation includes the word city. It, it, it's a secondary meaning. The manner of life you live is associated with where you live, and particularly in those early days. This is the word polite humor, P-O-L-I-T, which is a part of the word from the word polis, meaning a city. And the very word is used in the Acts of the Apostles when you remember the moment Paul made it known that he was a Roman, the soldier went running, running off to the captain. He said, hey, do you know that man's a Roman and you're talking about flogging him? So the captain came. And then they spoke to one another. He says, you are a Roman. And the captain said, with great price I've obtained I this freedom. And that word freedom is the word citizenship. And the apostle Paul says, but I was born free. Even better, wasn't it? Citizenship. One was a citizenship of Rome, the other is a citizenship of heaven. So he said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour. So there's a citizenship in both epistles, which has a goal, as it were, for them to press to. And then you have Moses, 
picked out as an example of suffering the reproach of Christ and counting it greater treasure, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, the reproach of Christ. And the apostle said he actually prayed that he may know something of the fellowship of his sufferings. It's a thought, friends, to keep in mind, if you never suffer with or for Christ in this life, as far as I interpret scripture, you'll never get an opportunity. I don't think there's going to be any suffering with or for Christ in the glory that's coming. Not that we're going out to ask for trouble. You'll get it well enough and truly enough if you'd only stand loyal to the truth. And here was this man said, if once I know the power of his resurrection, then I can stand in this world that to a large extent is antagonistic to my Saviour. And that will in some measure help me as I run this race to be accounted worthy of his well done when that day comes. Here is the thought of running the race. And so there's the reward which comes, the reward of the inheritance, Hebrews 11, and the prize of the high calling, Philippians 3. Then we've already spoken about the race in chapter 12, verse 1, and in chapter 3, 14, I press to the goal, the very terms used for running the race. And the mark which Paul speaks of in Philippians 3 was a white white mark. It seems very up to date, doesn't it? A white mark in the middle of the course, middle of the road, and if anyone put their foot over it, he was disqualified. So he says, when you're running, whereto you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, no dodging. If you do, you're out, so far as the race is concerned. And then we've already drawn attention to the leaving, Leaving, let us go on. What's the equivalent in Philippians? Forgetting the things which are behind. Now the man who wrote that was soaked in the history of his ancient old, his people. And he knew that after Israel had come out of Egypt, a redeemed people, and had put the Red Sea between them and Egypt and never went back again, a redeemed people, they went back in heart. They turned back in heart to Egypt. And they are said, let us appoint a captain and take us back. And the very word is used in the Hebrews too, not to take us back, but to take us on. All these things have got their place and should be weighed. Then we've already touched upon Hebrews speaking about a better resurrection and Philippians 3, the equivalent, the out-resurrection. Something which is distinct, something which is associated with a one who was running the race with the hope of the prize. And in both, there is working in you according to his good pleasure of his will, and in the Philippians, you work out, for it is God that worketh in you, according to his good will. And then there's that very strong emphasis of the person of Christ. In Hebrews, you will remember, it says that he's the express image of the Father. It says in Philippians that he was the form of God and thought it not a thing to be grasped at. The form of God. The image of the invisible God. The express image of his substance. Those two statements show you that this son of God is no ordinary, ordinary son of Adam. Nothing like that could be said of any of the fallen race of men. And then in both cases, 
He is the object of worship. In Hebrews 1, let all the angels of God worship him. You ought to ponder that, because you remember when John attempted to worship the angel that had been giving him that wonderful revelation, he said, see thou do it not, worship God. Yet the scripture says, you worship him. And then, the equivalent is that one day, that one whose name is Jesus, shall be the object of universal worship. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now in both cases, the cross of Christ is associated with not salvation and redemption, as you may think, but with the things that accompany salvation. Look at the words in Philippians 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You may say, oh, that's the ungodly world. But would a church of such high standing as the Philippians need to be warned not to follow the ungodly? That not, doesn't seem to ring true. He says, you watch us, because if you don't, you may follow them. But can a person who's a believer be an enemy of the cross of Christ? It depends what the cross stands for. The cross stands for the end of the flesh. The cross stands for the end of self. And if you tell me that no Christian ever puts self where God ought to put Christ, I shouldn't believe you, and I don't think you believe it yourself. And then you see there's another statement. In Hebrews it says, they... uh, trample underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing that was possible so there's some great possibilities if we begin to play as it were fast and loose with this high calling do notice another association it spoke about this one whose God was his belly I think you could turn to Hebrews and find the man who would be parallel with that friend Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And that word birthright is repeated in the same chapter when it says, but we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem to the church of the firstborn. The word firstborn and the word birthright are the same word with just a grammatical difference in the ending. So you're not forfeiting salvation, that's impossible but you may swap your birthright for a mess of pottage. Or when you see the way some Christians, just for a dish of lentils, the glory that's awaited them is forfeited. Or he has an exhortation in both of these epistles to learn that lesson and to walk humbly with God. It says, that they crucify afresh the Son of God and put him to open shame in Hebrews. It says that they could be the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians. Well, now there's a tremendous lot more. The word athletics enters into both of the epistles. Athletes in chapter 10, 32 and soon athleo to strive together in Philippians. Athletic words. And athletic words are in harmony with two epistles that have particular reference to running a race with a reward at the end. And as I've got down here, 
uh, are missing one. Look out for Esau. Or, if you write, if you read Philippians, mark them which walk. So you have us for an example. For there are Esau's in the church of the one body, as there were in the Hebrew calling. For one morsel of meat, sold his birthright, and God is their belly being the parallel. We read about that generation which were displeasing to God in the wilderness and a perverse generation in Philippians chapter 2. And then we have contentment. Um, chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And if that were true, I'd say, Paul, I'm sorry for you. But you say, why? Well, Paul wasn't content with it. He was content in spite of it. Leave the word there without it. It isn't there. He said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Not therewith. And then the next thing is the word content means to be independent. Paul had reached a point where he was independent of circumstances. He wasn't bubbling over with joy when he had a lot. And he wasn't sunk in despair when he had none. He said, there's one that remains just the same. And Hebrews tells you who it is in the first chapter. And he says it in the last chapter. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever is true of Philippians and true for all time and true of Hebrews. It urges you to communicate with those who are in need. And chapter 4 of Philippians says, uh, verse 14, notwithstanding you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. And then, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That is, in Hebrews. Such sacrifices. Oh, we're going to make sacrifices? Well, let Philippians 4 tell us. Verse 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What a definition of a little gift sent by hand to a someone in prison to associate it with a very gift of God. And then we have the fruit of righteousness in both epistles. We have compassion of those in bonds and partaker in the bonds of others. And then we have in he Hebrews those of Italy salute you. And we have in Philippians, Caesar's household salute you. And finally, the same signature. Would you look at Philippians 4? Verse 23, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now if you look at the last chapter of Hebrews, you won't absolutely repeat the words, but there are certain words that always occur Grace be with you all. And now, just in finishing, because my time is nearly out, look at two Thessalonians to see that this is his signature. This is his sign manual. Two Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 2. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. So there was a false epistle. When I said, I want you to remember that I always sign my epistles like this. Verse 17 of chapter 3. 
the salutation of Paul with mine own hand. He dictated his epistles. I, Tertius, wrote this epistle. That's Roman. He dictated it. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. I write like this. Like what, Paul? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Shall we look at Hebrews again and see whether that is there? Grace be with you all. We'll look at James just to see whether he done it and he doesn't. We look at Peter and he doesn't. We look at Jude and he doesn't. We look at the first and second and third of John and he doesn't. No epistle. No epistle uses grace be with you except one written by Paul. So people tell you they know that Paul didn't write Hebrews. Well, I tell them I've seen his signature. Well, you could say the same, but it doesn't matter. We are more concerned with the fact that God chose earthen vessels and filled them with his glory and spoke through the minds and pens of whoever he chose. It doesn't really matter. But I felt that we'd have to just hurry. And here we've just done a little examination this evening, but it's along the lines of true scriptural study. Using the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So that I think, if I've done nothing else, I hope I've demonstrated that while Hebrews belongs to its own calling and does not give us our hope and our place, nevertheless, it's a parallel that we can, we can no more exclude the running a race or the winning a prize or the if by any means just because we happen to be members of the body of Christ. It doesn't alter the glory of our salvation, but it should help us to remember that when it comes to a worthy walk, it's not with high, proud steps, but it's with all lowliness and meekness because of the possibilities of falling sometimes by the wayside.